When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very interested today to be interviewing Shaul Adar about his book titled On the Border, The Rise and Decline of the Most Political Club in the World, published by Pitch Publishing in 2022, which tells the really fascinating tale of a football club, um, soccer for American listeners, situated in one of the most volatile places on earth, Jerusalem in Israel. Um, The book explores uh, the history and the radicalization of this club um, and kind of how debates uh, within the club often mirror political debates within the wider country and political atmosphere and vice versa. Um, So it's a really interesting story that has kind of both a micro history as well as a lot of massive debates as well. So I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Shaul to the podcast. Hi, Miranda. Thanks for having me. Could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yeah, I'm, I'm a journalist for over 30 years now, born in Israel. I lived and worked in Jerusalem for a few years in the 90s. And in 2000, I moved to England, living here since then. Uh, I write a lot about football, two other previous book in Hebrew, but on any other subject. And I've been writing about Jerusalem for many, many years, which I find a fascinating subject. And when I was looking for idea after my second Hebrew book, it struck me that Beitar and Jerusalem is a wonderful topic, not just because of the football importance of it, because it says something about uh, Israeli politics and Israeli society. And uh, I started on this voyage in uh, 2018. It took much longer because of the pandemic, but however, it uh, actually it was good because a year ago, Beitar was having one of its false dawns, which is quite a 
reoccurring event and now it turned out to be a complete shambles which uh, ties the book very good with the political situation. <laughs> yes, um, I think that that's something that's very clear in the book, um, how consistently sort of events within the club, um, sometimes without meaning to sort of mirror what's happening more broadly um, and vice versa, which was one of the fascinating aspects. And so I'd love to kind of take a bit of a tour through the main points of the book, um, if possible, and obviously, therefore, kind of start out at the beginning. Who were Beitar's initial fans? How did that kind of compare when the club um, joined the Israeli football sort of scene? Uh, Beitar was formed in 1936 by as uh, the youth and sport movement of the Herut or what become later Likud, the Israeli mainstream right parties and ideology. And uh, for many years they suffered from, let's say, cold shoulder by the big sport organization of the Zionist uh, movement in in, during the British mandate in Palestine, pre-Israel, Maccabi and Apoel tried their best to put Beitar teams uh, as far as uh, neglected as possible. Beitar Tel Aviv was the main team of the Beitar uh, movement, and, we, and they were quite a good team with many achievements. And Beitar, because of geography, Jerusalem then was a small town compared to the main uh, Zionist uh, settlements of uh, the Tel Aviv region, uh, suffered. And uh, a surprising fact was that they played many games until 1948 against uh, local Arab teams, sometimes reluctantly, sometimes quite willingly, and uh, there's a interesting book by uh, Omar Einav, if somebody would want to look up. So, it's, the start is not very nationalistic or racist, like some people would like to think, although there were some uh, major events where Beitar youth took uh, part in it. But... Uh, Things started to change in the 50s with massive immigration from Arab countries or Muslim countries. And Beitar, the team, and many Herut under Menachem Begin were the home for many Mizrahi Jews who felt betrayed by the, the Israeli state. So it there was this is there was always a DNA of resistance and anger in the team, which I think uh, led to uh, for mainly the character of the the club. They suffered financially, and uh, sometimes the uh, Apoel team and Apoel Jerusalem were the favorite sons in Jerusalem and under the mayorship. But it gave uh, Beitar the, the character that it still has have today. And can you tell us a little bit more about kind of the political dynamics of kind of who the members, who the club supporters were initially, right? there, You spoke a little bit about um, 
they're kind of have a political particular political party? What about sort of their socioeconomic status, um, levels of religion, that sort of thing? Kind of who were the people that supported this club at first? Yeah, if we analyze Israeli societies in the 50s, we can say there was the established Ashkenazi, more settled uh, of uh, people who were in the major army forces of Haganah and later the IDF, uh, which were the hegemony. And other, mainly people more uh, conservative, sometimes religious, who resented the the, the main uh, the kind of Zionism that Ben-Gurion tried to have, which were much more secular to their taste. They felt that they've been forced to give up their very important faith to some degree, and they suffered economic hardship compared to Ashkenazi Jews who immigrated at the same time from post-Holocaust Europe. There are many reasons for the difference, but the resentment and the felt of betrayal is still resonant in Israeli society till this day. And uh, under Menachem Begin, Herut was very welcoming home to these people. He always gave importance to the tradition, the Jewish tradition, and to more uh, nationalistic uh, side. Uh, calling to, after 1948 war, the division of Jerusalem, Begin and his people resented it and felt it was a, the wrong step and uh, that Jer- the, the holy parts of Jerusalem should be part of Israel one day. While the uh, labor movement under Ben-Gurion and his successors were more busy building the country and uh, even one of the subject was uh, the, the settlements with Germany, which again for Begin was uh, an insult and for Ben-Gurion was the practical move to build the economic, which, but one of the side effects was the many Holocaust survivors were able to get out of the transit camps and move to the cities while the Mizrahi Jews stay there for much longer. Got it. Thank you for kind of introducing that and explaining it. And I think because um, you've now sort of explained who the people are and kind of what they were coming from, what they were inclined to think, as well as sort of where the club fit in um, initially, you've sort of already suggested that, you know, as you said, there's, there's nationalistic tendencies, there's some anger already. How then does this kind of end up um, or create Beitar's reputation as being the most violent football club in Israel? I had a, I read a few times the, the official book, which had lots of uh, <coughs> scrapings from the sport pages of, <coughs> sorry, of the time. And I was quite shocked by the nonchalant uh, approach to violent events at the YMCA ground in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, uh, the the visiting keeper had the free teeth knocked out. Some, you know, it's just an odd remark or 
many games, uh, even the Beitar people admitted that they were, the crowd influenced them by intimidation. And some of the main, most violent events in <coughs> Israeli football history in late one in 1969, I think, and two in the early 70s were with Beitar Jerusalem fans in uh, Petah Tikva and in uh, the main stadium in Tel Aviv. And uh, reading Beitar fans, they saying it's, it's an image, it's something that the evil Ashkenazi lefty media forced it upon them. But if you look at the records, it's quite clear that Beitar had some uh, troublesome history and the, there is no other club with such major events like uh, the three major riots of Beitar. Every club has uh, some misdemeanor, but none of them uh, threaten other players with Uzi machine guns and told the uh, one referee go back to Russia, it's a pity that Hitler didn't finish the job with you. That's pretty extreme. That's not yeah. quite the same as a misdemeanor, I don't think. Yep, and it's yeah. not just... Uh, uh, the funny thing that uh, after such event, uh, Beta demanded uh, a technical uh, victory because the game was uh, suspended. So... Uh, mm. Uh, chutzpah is a good word to start with. <laughs> yes, probably. Um, so you spoke a little bit about kind of the fact that a lot of the supporters um, of the club were also supporters of Menachem Begin, um, who was obviously in opposition in Israeli politics for a long time, but then comes to power, political power himself, um, along with his party. So ha- what changes uh, or what changed about the club, the fan base, the significance of the club, when suddenly the political identity it was tied to was the one in power? Uh, that's key question in Israeli sport history. Bitar won its first state cup in 1976 in a major event that forged the image of the club and its popularity. They beat Maccabi Tel Aviv, the most established team in Israeli sport you know, the first club and the most successful club and the richest club and the most connected, a club that I despise, by the way, but never mind. Uh, And they beat them in 1976 and turned overnight into extremely popular club. That was just a year before Begin took power for the first time in Israeli politics. Uh, so it many people would like to say that it led to the election victory. I'm not sure. It gave uh, energy to the supporters and to the voters. But uh, Begin, when I spoke to former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, which helped the club since the late 60s and was a key figure for many, many years, he said that Begin said it's nonsense. They would have voted for me in any case. I still think symbolically it's in, the two are tied together forever. And it's it does help to have a morale-boosting event like that. Since then, 
that's my own very personal take. Beitar has have been used by the Likud. They didn't gain a lot of power of financial arms or anything compared to the way they've been prostituted by the Likud. And uh, it, it, it gave them some kind of aura in the all along Israel, outside the, 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 the more established part. It, it gave them some kind of, uh, you know, we are the rebels and now we are the successful rebels, which is even better. And uh, they had the, uh, in the 90s, I remember being on the pitch level and looking to my right and seeing half the government and half the Israeli IDF uh, top generals sitting in a, some kind of a VIP stand. So it it made them feel powerful. But on the other hand, Beitar financially has been and always, and especially now, always been a a club in confused, mismanaged, and extremely poorly uh, managed club and never used their potential, which leads to the demise of the club right now. And what exactly do you think that Likud gained from this association with the club? It sounds like the club didn't benefit very much from it practically, what did the political party get out of, you know, being at these matches and making such a big deal of it? Uh, that's that's a tough question. We there are so many things who make people vote the way, the, the way they vote. So I think it's they both uh, play the same chords and you know struck the same notes. So. So before every election, and there are plenty of them in the last few years, you, you would see the, the top uh, Likud hierarchy trying to gain votes there. But now, these days, you see the same pictures used by beta fans crying out, <coughs> what, what did you do to help the team apart from uh, taking these photo ops before the elections? Well, what are you doing now to save the club? Um, so I'm, uh, I need to go back. Menachem Begin, as he said to Olmert, it's not that important. Ol- maybe it's, it does help on the local level. It did help many, many politicians in the Herut section of Jerusalem. The, the list of... Uh, Ministers, one prime minister, and uh, one president is quite impressive. Although Netanyahu, uh, I really doubt if he's a football fan. I think it's much more uh, another one of his uh, charades. Mm. Um, And one of the things that you um, argue about um, this club, uh, both kind of historically, but especially now, especially in the last at least 10, probably more like 20 years, you're talking um, really from the 90s, there seems to be um, some sort of change. You argue in the book that, quote, Beitar isn't a racist club, 
but an organization deeply infected with racism. Can you help us understand that? Uh, yeah, it's very flexible and very dynamic. I I give them the benefit of the doubt, let's say, because some chairmen try to fight it. One of them, with all his heart, without any hesitation, and I spoke to him, it's it's a confine, and he suffered horrendous personal abuse because of it. People stood beneath his house and threatened his wife and daughters in the most vile way. And he had to give up in the end and leave the club. Uh, Other chairmen, including the current one, the owner, Moshe Hogeg, did try to fight them, but we don't know why. Some say it, it was just a just a way to to get the support from other uh, forces. Uh, there are uh, many many fans who would love to see the club clean of the racist elements, and uh, so that's why I refuse to label them as a racist club. However, if the new owner of the club or will let the La Familia, the racist uh, Fener Ultras organization, any foothold in the ownership or the management of the club, then you can say it's a proper racist organization. Mm. At the moment, there is a sliver of hope that they're at least trying to fight it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That's good to hear. Um, I'd love to ask a bit more about La Familia um, and how you talk about in the book their influence has grown beyond um, being in very visibly racist and bigoted at Betar Games and around the club itself. And in fact, you talk about how their influence has gone into mainstream politics. Um, how has that happened? Um since the mid nineties, Betara had a very <coughs> sorry, strong racist elements in the crowd. Uh, there were two reasons: the Oslo Accords and the wave of terror in the mid nineties, and the rise of Arab-Israeli football. There was a visible, tangible, you know, enemy, somebody to hate in a in front of your eyes. It wasn't just a it was easy to 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 shout death to the Arabs when you're playing against an Arab team. And there were plenty since the 90s in the top Israeli league. Uh, with the advancements of social media, uh, more and more uh, fans' organization took form. And uh, La, Fam- <coughs> La Familia was one of them. And uh, after the horrendous uh, second intifada, it gave them more, uh, the the anti-Arab voices grew, especially in Jerusalem. 
and uh, it became uh, the raison d'etre, not just supporting Beitar, but making Beitar a, a club without an Arab uh, player. Uh, they got a foothold into the team when Arkadi Gaidamak, the owner in in the 2005 for a few years, very successful uh, two years, uh, became the owner. He let them put on uh, shows in the on <coughs> on the stands, gave them room in the stadium, and it was very comfortable for him. And they supported him for a while. He felt at ease. But once you let this element inside the club, it's extremely hard to get rid of them. And this is one of the, I think, key points of my book. It's, it's not just a racism, bad, uh, peace, good book. It's about how it happened. And uh, now I think there's more Beta fans who would like to see the club as a normal, even boring club, just a football club, but it's ex- it's extremely hard to reverse this pattern. It's like you're pu- pushing out uh, the toothpaste back into the mm. its canister. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it led to the events of 2013, which I guess we'll speak about. And since then, the club is uh, just uh, sinking and sinking, and its image is, has been tarnished completely. So, uh, sorry, go ahead. About the political connections, I think that's another key issue. Why it happened in Beitar and uh, not other places. In Beitar, in the in Teddy Stadium, they were welcomed by key politicians. Miri Regev, the Netanyahu right-hand woman, uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, the, the voice of Israeli Kahanism or Neo-Kahanism, uh, and uh, Netanyahu himself stayed there. And uh, Miri Regev, uh, Minister for Education, said, I love to go to Teddy and watch games and uh, speak with my La Familia friends. And so they felt welcome. They felt that they got the the main key government and state offices behind them. And why not? You know, once in a while, the police try to take actions against them, but they always take huge blows, but recover after it. And uh, there is a feeling that... Uh, um that some politicians use them as a as their to their own benefit and during the the big upheavals of demonstrations against Netanyahu and the internal fighting between the Jews and Muslims in the last year you could see you could hear and see la familia supporters fighting against uh, anti-Netanyahu or against Muslims, singing the same songs that <coughs> they used to sing in the stands. Death to the Arabs and may your village will burn. 
and uh, one of the most uh, uh, self-incriminating song, Here Come the Racist uh, Team of the Land, mm. which they claim it's not a racist song, but I'll leave it to the judgments of our listeners. Fair enough. I think they can probably make that judgment. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a bit about why 2013 was such a turning point for the club. Uh, Arkady Gaidamak ran, put huge money into the club, something that is still unseen in Israeli standards. And the team won <coughs> the title for two years. Then it tried, <coughs> sorry, to run for mayorship and got something like 3.4, if I remember correctly, percent of the votes. He got in, deeply insulted and cut the, the financial uh, help to the club, which, of course, then it deteriorated and suffered immensely. It still, it was a wealthy club, but uh, nothing like they couldn't compete for titles anymore. In 2013, for some reason, he became close to the evil regime of Chechnya with those uh, people that we see now in Ukraine committing the crimes they commit. And he brought Bita to play some kind of a sham game against uh, the local team of Grozny and told uh, the manager to pick two players from Grozny to bring to Bita. Uh, we believe some people believe he, he tried he tried to get closer to Vladimir Putin at the time, or establish some economic uh, ties with the Chechens and the Kremlin. In any case, when the owner asks you to take some players, you you take, and two Chechen players uh, were brought to Beitar on loan. One was pretty good, and. Uh, the other was uh, a bit young and uh, inexperienced, <coughs> and hell <coughs> broke loose. Uh, the La Familia and many other fans declared that they would not accept Muslim players in the team. And they stood to their words. They turned every training session into hell. Every game they turn against the team and, and against the fans who supported the team. And when of one of those players uh, scored a goal, they left the, the stadium in disgust. Uh, the most remembered act was that once during a game, they raised a banner <coughs> saying, Beitar forever pure. And... Uh, for every Israeli, it was clear what they mean. It was about racial purity and uh, the Nazi uh, ramifications were quite obvious and horrendous. I spoke to the marketing director of the club at the time and he said that one of the sponsors was at the game and he signed a big uh, sponsorship deal just a week before. Once he saw the sign, he left the stand immediately and told him in the parking lot that the deal is off. I will pay you what you know what I have to pay you, but this is this is it. We don't want any connection with this kind of club. 
And it happened with any other major sponsor, Israeli and international. The club <coughs> has become toxic one. Uh, so, and since then, they had one or two okay seasons, but uh, the image never recovered, and the internal fighting keeps on. Sometimes more violently, sometimes uh, more uh, peacefully, but mm-hmm. the tension is always there and breaking the fandom apart. And so then, what is what is the current state um, of the club? Um, obviously, the fans are divided. Um, the club receives a lot of negative attention. Um what is the club kind of in how, what state is the club in at the minute in terms of leadership finances um also in terms of as a football club um in terms of winning matches or being competitive or anything like that well in one word bad in two words very bad uh the club is on the brink we don't know anything how will they complete in which league who will be the owner the, it's all up in the air. Uh, the current owner, Moshe Hogeg, is under investigation for major fraud and some uh, sexual misdemeanors. Uh, testimonies of former employees is in his uh, crypto and uh, f- companies raises lots of questions about uh, the way he conducted his businesses and uh, he may stood trial in the near future so that makes any selling of the team much harder because mm. the the police and court has to approve it and is involved in any money getting in and out of the club uh, for the time being, he refuses to sell, and we don't know if there is a proper owner because <coughs> there are debts. The image is terrible, and uh, there are major uh, internal fighting among the fans. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking at social media, and every post is followed with abuse and the hatred between their own fans. Uh, blaming each other well usually they're blaming the the liberal media for the, all their faults but then they're blaming each other hmm. for for the current situation so not a very I, good outlook for the club no they may survive and find some kind of a way to start the next season but the current squad look very poor and weak and we can't see them fight for any title. They are years behind the the three leading clubs of Israeli football. Mm. Uh, And they may uh, go under, start with next season with a point deduction, or maybe get relegated. But Israeli football always try to save them and gives them more time and much more opportunities to start the league. They've been there numerous time in this situation but this is the worst and why do they because, keep getting um extensions and uh the ability to avoid uh penalties by the israeli football association 
because they're a popular club with a big f- uh, fan base. So unlike small clubs that doesn't generate interest, TV viewing uh, percentage or fans, you know, on seats, they do it to some degree. Nothing like the heydays. So there is an interest of the the governing powers of Israeli football to see Beitar in the league. Mm-hmm. And they, I think when Olmert was in power, he did his best to support them and bring other uh, new owners. Although almost each and all of them turn out to be horrendous owners in the end. But uh, when a powerful man like Ehud Olmert ask for time, uh, you you do try to help him. Mm. At the moment, it looks like Bitar will have to solve their problem themselves first. Mm. And this book, um, obviously, you talk to a lot of different people, um, current people involved, historical people involved. I mean, the number of newspapers that you clearly read through um, to get all these details of the history and construct how all of this has happened um, was there anything in particular that was surprising to you during this process? Uh, yeah, I mentioned one element of Bitar early days from 1936 to 1948 when the treatment they got from the Maccabi and Apoel was so poor they had to play with Arab teams. And... Uh, some and they play against key people in their Palestinian uh, society at the time. One of them was the future Mufti of Jerusalem. Uh, so that was uh, an interesting element. I did enjoy. We maybe should uh, make clear that the book is not just about football; it's about Jerusalem. And when we speak about Jerusalem, it's about religion. So. I enjoyed researching the religious part of Jerusalem and how artificial it is. Between 1948 and 1967, Israel didn't have access to the holy sites in Jerusalem and the West Bank. So the newly formed Israeli state invented new holy sites completely out of thin air, and which is, in my eyes, a wonderful example about the, the the nature of religions. Uh, I was... I think I was shocked by the level of violence throughout the years. I spoke to somebody who was in the key riot in Petah Tikva and he said that people feared for their lives. And... Now it's part of a mythology and part of a humorous uh, sketch, and we forget how bad it was. Mm. And uh, that makes sense that that would be surprising, given how it is um, remembered. Uh, that the details, or at least the impact of those details, seem to have been lost. But obviously, uh, thankfully, you've revived them in the book. Um, as we come towards the end of the interview, um, is there anything else you want to kind of highlight to our listeners from the book? Yeah, I, I use Bitar as a... As a I'm tr- 
Beitar has a history of uh, predicting key events in Israeli history, the rise of the Likud, the rise of the Mizrahi vote and Mizrahi society, and uh, nationalism and racism. And if we look now what the current situation of the Likud, it's and uh, the way Netanyahu pushed outspoken and clearly racist elements of the Israeli right into the, to the mainstream, we should worry uh, what will happen next because uh, it's easy to use uh, these uh, voices for an election campaign and use the member of Knesset when you need them. But once the situation will get unbearable, trying to control those elements will be extremely hard again. And uh, I think some people told me that they felt like um, I'm leading them in the streets of Jerusalem. And that's something that I try to do because I do... I do like the city a lot, and I live there, and for some reason had uh, many romantic uh, girlfriends and partners from there. Uh, and I do, I do care about Israeli football. I think is is very positive force in Israeli society, and Beitar are the outstanding elements in in this kind of a success story. So. Mm. It's it's quite a complex book. At least I hope to make it one. <laughs> well, I think it's a very complex story as well. And I'm glad you highlighted that point about Beitar being often um, a way to kind of see what might come next in Israeli politics and see the undercurrents before they surface. Um, because there are such a number of examples of that in the book throughout the history of the club. Um now that this book, however, is obviously published and out and people can read it, um, what are you working on now or next? I'm recovering from a nasty COVID, like half of London these days, um, and working on my uh, day job, writing about many other subjects. Just returned from the north of Scotland, so I wrote a lovely travel piece and something about uh, British politics, which is uh, looking quite depressing and and looking for a new subject for a book. So I don't think it will be a football book, but (laughs) I think after three books, a trilogy is enough. But uh, who knows? Yeah. Fair enough. Well, best of luck um, with that future work. And while you are off doing um, that, uh, listeners can read the book that we have been discussing titled On the Border, The Rise and Decline of the Most Political Club in the World from Pitch Publishing in 2022. Shaul Adar, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks, Miranda, for having me. It's been a pleasure.